As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome to the Total Soccer Show Weekend Review. We're looking back on a weekend where Kane brought the pain and somehow stayed in the game as Spurs returned from their forced two-week vacation to test a COVID-ravaged Liverpool. Much like TRL in the 90s, the USMNT enjoyed some Carson-based success with some new faces, some debut aces, and a solid basis for the programme to move forward. Elsewhere, Ajax won De Classica, Leeds suffered another massacre, and Atletico Madrid were lacklustre. Doesn't really rhyme, got away with it. My name is Ryan Bailey. Joining me today is a man who's a lot like Tottenham versus Liverpool in that he produces very entertaining points. Taylor Rockwell, hello. Hello, I'll, I'll take that over being frenetic, but without anyone ending up feeling satisfied. Yeah, yeah, I'll take I'll take yours. Good. All right, then. I'm glad we settled on that. How are you doing this weekend, Taylor? It's been a weekend. Our, our daughter has been carrying a fever, and then uh, this morning we could not find our keys, so we had to call a locksmith. It's been an eventful morning, but not quite as eventful as, say, VAR in the Premier League. Did the baby eat the keys, Taylor? I mean, w- we'll find out. She's at the pediatrician right now, so if my wife returns with the set of keys... We are bad parents. Well, if you shake her and she jingles, then you know she's... Well, I don't need to go there, Taylor. <laughs> Not one part of that was going to be a good idea. Not one part of it. <laughs> I'm going to move on. Also, here's a man who looks forward to out-of-window USMNT friendlies like the rest of us look forward to the holidays. Hello, Joe Lowry. Hello, Ryan. I hate I hate how accurate that is, but I, I was pretty excited for that game. Less excited after seeing the lineup and certainly less excited after having sat through the whole thing. But nevertheless... Here we are. Is that not a rock and roll Saturday night for you, Joe, watching a, a friendly against Bosnia and Herzegovina? Don't come for my brand like that, Ryan. Don't come for my brand. <laughs> Bless you, Joseph. We will be talking about that game, of course, in detail later on in this show. But Joe, just a little check-in on you as well. You had your COVID booster. Good for you, bud. How are you feeling? Scale of 1 to 10. Uh, I'm at about a 3 right now. We're up in the energy levels for this show, but uh, I'm, I'm not doing the best. Still absolutely worthwhile. Go get your boosters, all that good stuff if you can. Um, and, and I'm happy to be here chatting with you fellas because that is doing wonders for my constitution right now. Oh, likewise. Your Wi-Fi signal is better than it's ever been, Joe. Oh, Taylor, I can't reveal that. <laughs> Ryan Ryan is uh, no longer dealing with his poor Italian Wi-Fi. I may have found some better Wi-Fi myself. We're really making improvements around here, Taylor. There you go. We are indeed. I've got to say, if you're feeling a three out of ten, that's like an average Monday for me. So I think (laughs) you're pretty much on par for the Total Soccer Show there, Joe. Well done. Uh, Rounding out our group today is a man who's gone on record stating he is not okay. I repeat, not okay with soccer coaches wearing Air Jordans on the touchline. What say you, Graham Rutherford? Hi, hi, Ryan Bailey. Yes, I am not okay with that. Greg Berhalter, don't get above your station. Those Air Jordans (laughs) are not meant for you. (laughs) So, to be clear, uh, apparently Greg Berhalter was wearing AJ1 um, and Manier. They're high-top sneakers. I don't know anything about them, Graham, but they offended you. Yeah. If you're, if you're a football manager, you get two choices, which is um, suit trousers with, with base Londons, which are like low-grade dress, like smart shoes, like leather shoes. Loafers. Brogues or something like that. Or you, you wear tracksuit bottoms with uh, Puma Kings. That's your only choice. You don't have another choice if you're a football manager. All right, then. Taylor, feel any differently about that? 
I think for a gentleman who has roughly one million soccer jerseys to complain about the footwear of a national team coach is, is a bit rich. I enjoy <laughs> the stories about Greg Berhalter's uh, footwear, I, I, including the one that he had to bring like a separate bag for his sneakers. He is known to wear different sneakers for important games. You can find montages nope, of them No, this is not football manager Google. behavior. This is just not acceptable on the touchline. You're, you're, meant to, you're, you're meant to be uncool if you're a football manager. You're not Great. allowed I mean, to be cool. <laughs> Pep Guardiola would like a word with you because I remember him wearing his what I thought were knockoff Adidas that had five stripes on them, and then I looked them up and they cost five hundred dollars. Yeah. yeah, but like I think I think coaches like their sneakers. Yeah, but he offset that with that jacket with the Man City badge on the back of it, so you know it all, it all canceled <laughs> each other out. Great. Are we pitching Greg Fairporter as cool? By the way. Well, what he was wearing was relatively cool, just not for a football manager. In a weird way, that makes him even more uncool if you try to be cool. It's like Graham, it's like negative points. Graham, this is your most Scottish take of all time, just <laughs> surpassing the mutton pie with brown sauce from last week. <laughs> Fair. Fair enough. All right, we'll be- a football manager has to look like they hate their job and do not want to be there, and then they can manage Scotland. Well, yeah, that's that, Graham's opinion. That's yeah, just how they the- do it in Scotland, Taylor. <laughs> yeah, and nothing can fit. Basically, uh, Steve Clark is basically the look you're going for. <laughs> Everyone has to be dour and not enjoy things. That's how we do yeah. things around here. All right, let's move on from that. We're going to be talking about lots of games that happened this weekend, including Tottenham against Liverpool and the aforementioned US friendly. But there is an elephant in the room, gents. We have to get to the biggest news of the weekend. Christian Pulisic's jersey, the signed one on Porn Stars. This chip, uh, this clip, excuse me, has been going around on the social medias. There is a guy trying to get $2,500 for a framed Pulisic jersey. Uh, there's a valuation expert on this show, Porn Stars, P-A-W-N, that is. Uh, he says that Pulisic is like the LeBron James of soccer. We think of Messi and Ronaldo. This kid's already been compared <laughs> to them. Uh, he plays centre midfield, sometimes centre forward. That was uh, the best bet. Yeah, big fan. Although... I think this weekend he actually did play kind of centre forward, so maybe uh, yeah. maybe this guy was ahead of his time with this recording. But I've got to say, gents, I I went on eBay. I went to see because I was the, the clip cuts out before you find out whether he got his twenty five hundred dollars the valuation for this shirt. There was a Pulisic signed jersey that sold on Sunday for two hundred ninety nine dollars. There was one that sold on Friday for two hundred twenty nine dollars. That is about a tenth of the price this gentleman was looking for for his Pulisic jersey. So. I mean, I mean, Joe, how do we feel about this? How far back has this set the discourse of American soccer? Uh, it's it set it back a good bit among people that regularly watch the History Channel at, what is that, 8 p.m. Central? I don't know what time Pawn Stars is on. <laughs> but uh, I did read on Twitter, Ryan, you're talking about how we don't know the ending. It wasn't in that video, but I did read on Twitter that uh, apparently they passed, the pawn shop passed on that jersey because it would have taken up too much wall space. So, you know, I guess justice was sort of served because, in that situation. Big. Because they found out the LeBron James of soccer is actually Gio Reyna. Right. That was the other reason. They gave those two reasons like in tandem. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just choosing to believe that the guy who was, who was trying to sell it was actually just Thomas Ducal in glasses. And when they corrected him that Pulisic doesn't play center forward, he was like, oh, really? And then we got Pulisic at center forward this weekend. It all connects. And, and I'm into it. There you go. Now all I can think about is what else was on these walls that they didn't have space for a Pulisic jersey. I thought pawn, I pawn shop walls just were just like, stuff. they're just like TGI Fridays. They've got like a bunch of number plates and stuff on the walls, right? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Ryan, you sound like a man who's never watched Pawn Stars before. And it's, it's really embarrassing for you. It is. I've watched a two-minute clip on Twitter this weekend. That surmises my Paul Stars viewing, Joe, but I shall d- dive into it more now that we've had this big news from Christian Pulisic and his jersey there. Uh, let's park that one and go to the Premier League, shall we? Uh, a shortened uh, Premier League weekend. Only four Premier League games went to head. Only one on Saturday after six were cancelled after escalating COVID numbers on this island on which I currently stand. Um, Arsenal got a 4-1 win at Leeds on Saturday. Leeds conceding 11 goals in the in the past week lost three in a row have leads trending towards a relegation zone uh joe leads seem in deep doo-doo it says here on the show notes yeah that's right i said it and i'll say it again leads are in deep doo-doo guys <laughs> they're first of all they're they're really dealing with a depleted squad not as much because of covid right now just because of injuries and, and one thing that's always been incredibly important for marcelo bielsa is continuity in his squad, and right now he doesn't have that. He doesn't even have enough really full fit fit first team players to, to run out a regular lineup. So he's having to patch some things over, and frankly, it's not working. Martin Odegaard and, and Martinelli and Saka and Lacazette, they had so much space to run into for Arsenal in that four one win. 
it's no wonder Leeds are leaking goals. When you watch five minutes of pretty much any of their games right now, you can predict that that's going to happen on any given match day. So Bielsa and Leeds are in deep doo-doo. Doo-doo deep they are, uh, Joe. Taylor, this one is interesting to me because I was going to make a point, I don't know if I made it last week, showed that they play quite well against Chelsea in spades. And I thought, no way could this team could be in relegation trouble. Surely that's not a thing this Leeds are going to go through. But here we are, Taylor. Yeah, I mean, to Joe's point, I think missing 11 players for this game, uh, nine of them semi-regular first-teamers to steal a line from the Guardian, I think is something that can't be overlooked. And when you're missing Jack Harrison, when you're missing Patrick Bamford, you look at Leeds, uh, basically complete failure to score goals this season or inability to score goals. I think a lot of that relates to Patrick Bamford. I guess the silver lining would be that Bielsa has made it to a fourth season, which is not a, a, a common occurrence for him. Mm. So... Maybe they stay the course and just kind of reinforce in January. Maybe they go down and he stays there. Either way, I think it's going to be a really interesting end of the season for Leeds. Genuinely, whatever happens, if they stay up, if they go down, if they keep Bielsa, if they don't, I think there's a lot to keep an eye on with that team because it does feel like they have so much talent there. The injuries really holding them back. And a really interesting point that I saw was that they have the highest vaccination record. So there's almost an argument that like if they weren't, as vaccinated would they have had some players with covid would they have gotten to suspend this game and be in better form for the next round but they have everybody vaccinated they just have everybody injured so here they are still outside the relegation zone but only just barely yeah three losses in a row for Leeds three wins in a row Graham for Arsenal however um where are Arsenal on the sucksometer right now they seem like they're (laughs) quite good yeah, Arsenal are having a, a. If you eliminate that that opening weekend defeat to to Brentford, they're they're having a strangely consistent season where they are a long way off the top of the top three in the Premier League. I think it's fair to say they've suffered heavy defeats to those three, but they're almost they're, they're brushing aside almost every other team. And I think this was a, an illustration of that. How when it's not at one of the top teams in the Premier League, Arsenal are having no bother getting the job done. Gabriel Martinelli, um, he's got three goals in his last two games. He now seems to be a better option on, on, on the left side than Aubameyang, whose Arsenal career looks as, as good as finished. Of course, he was stripped of the captaincy last uh, week and he was then banished from first team training after a disciplinary breach. And that's his second this year. So it looks like he that might be him. He might be going down the Guanduzzi uh, route, I think, <laughs> fairly soon. And then Martin Odegaard, who Joe mentioned there, I think he's become... Arsenal's best creative force since I was thinking about this since Chess Fabregas I think as the as the last player I can I can remember having such a hold over the over the creativity in the center of the pitch as Odegaard does now for Arsenal so yeah they, they it's been a strange season for them their defeats have been really hard but there have been I think more good moments than bad moments for them this season are they the Premier League's Dortmund they seem to be riding the roller coaster Graham a, a little bit, but Dortmund, it feels like Dortmund can still uh, lose to like an, Aug- an Augsburg or someone like that every so often. Yeah. Whereas Arsenal, it feels like they're, they are, they are as I say, they're being strangely consistent where they, they're suffering heavy defeats to the best teams, but everyone else, they're, they're kind of sweeping aside. Indeed. Well, one of my rare treats when I'm back home in the UK is to watch Match of the Day, BBC's Match of the Day, uh, at the correct broadcast hour on broadcast television. And I got to Saturday night and there was one game and Match of the Day was literally the Match of the Day. And it was a 20 (laughs) minute long show, which was quite bizarre when it's usually much, much longer than that. So a very strange sensation there. But we had a few more games on Sunday. Man City remained top of the Premier League with a 4-0 win at Newcastle. They set a top flight record for wins in a calendar year with 34. Congratulations to City, I guess. Uh, Newcastle uh, still only on 10 points. They're above Norwich on goal difference. That's their second 4-0 loss in a week. They've conceded 11 goals this week and scored one. Uh, Note, that is not good. City have scored 12 goals in the past week and conceded none. Note, that is good. And as we mentioned, Chelsea drew with Wolves. They got a 0-0 there. They actually requested the game be called off and had their request turned down by the Premier League. They had seven positive tests. The Premier League said they had enough available players. Uh, hence, we had Christian Pulisic playing uh, up front in that one. Chelsea only one win in their last five. Wolves just one win in their last six. Why don't we, gents, turn the tables to Tottenham 2, Liverpool 2, where there were 45,000 fans in North London on a weekend where six games were cancelled and the Omicron variant is exponentially spreading. Totally fine. 45,000. I think that's cool. Great. Yep. Uh, but this was a really, really good game. End-to-end madness. 
Joe, let's start with you. What did you take on this one? It seemed like a, a game of pinball at times, this one. So fun, right? The top line in my notes for this is in bold and italics. It just says, this game was really good. This this is the kind of game that the Premier League wants all the time, right? This is why we watch soccer. It was end-to-end. It was two teams with pretty clear, identifiable game plans that at times exploited the other's weaknesses and at times had their own weaknesses exploited. Tottenham really, though, impressed me more so than Liverpool, partially because we kind of know what we get with Liverpool right now. And there's some specific things in this game that maybe we can talk about later, maybe we won't. But Tottenham, I'm still getting used to watching them under Antonio Conte right now. They come out in this 3-5-2, 5-3-2 shape with Harry Kane and Son up top, and then they got the nice midfield three underneath those with Harry Winks anchoring that. And then they got the back five or the back three with wingbacks. And man, they came in with a very clear idea of what they wanted to do in this game. And that game plan was killing Liverpool on the break. Man, every single time, or almost every single time, Tottenham won the ball back after being in a a mid-block 5-3-2 shape. Youngman's son would just drive past you know, uh, Liverpool's two center backs in this game. He would motor his way off the ball, make this vertical run in behind, and Liverpool, after having pushed up their fullbacks, Trent Alexander-Arnold and Andy Robertson in this game, they'd push those players forward. It left the center backs really exposed, and, and exposed by the quality and the timing of Son's, run, uh, Son's runs and of Kane's runs. They were carving Liverpool up in this game in a way that I don't think I've seen Liverpool get carved up in quite some time. Over and over again, this stuff was happening, and, and it was really impressive to watch from this Conte team. It was impressive, Joe. I mean, as you say, uh, yeah, they, they did a very good job of carving up here. It seems that Conte has reprogrammed everyone, is one of the uh, the notes that I saw on this one. Uh, they were a little more refreshed. They had two weeks off, three game cancellations here. Um, but Graham, I think, do we have to ask how Tottenham didn't win this one? Because they had enough chances, you could say, in front of goal. Yeah, they they certainly did. They should have scored more than than two. I was a little bit surprised to see that their their xG, I think it was two point six, which seems to me it sh- it probably should have been higher than that, given the chances that that both Son. I think he might have been slightly offside for his chance where he tries yeah. to round Alison Becker. That probably gets called back, but nonetheless, it it was a it was a poor finish from Son. And then there was the the biggest chance for me was when Deli Ali gets released in behind. He squares it for Kane. It's not the best square pass for Kane, but not, he should he should still score Kane, and it's saved by it's a bit of a sort of powder puff finish from Kane, and and, and Allison saves it. So yes, they had uh, some really big opportunities, Spurs, but I saw a lot to encourage Tottenham fans from this performance. I, I go along with a lot of what Joe says. For me, this was the clearest sign yet of Conte using that Inter Milan blueprint and carrying that over to Tottenham. Everything from the trademark back three, you had Sessegnon and uh, Emerson Royale as the ones um, giving Spurs a wide outlet as the wing-backs. The way that that midfield three uh, worked was very similar to how the Inter Milan midfield three worked with Barella in particular and, and how he had the freedom to break forward. And I thought Ali and, and, and Dombele did that well in this in, in this match. And then the front two of uh, Kane and Son, which was very Lukaku-Martinez-esque, which is, uh, or sorry, Martinez, sorry, that's my British... Uh, <laughs> vernacular there Martinez uh, it was very um, it was very reminiscent of how those two players were used by Conte for for Inter so lots of lots of space to move into lots of vertical movements lots of exchange play between those front two so yeah I think Conte's Spurs are going to be really interesting to watch in 2022 and uh, maybe we they shouldn't have given uh, Conte two weeks on the on the training pitch I was thinking that when I was watching this game was this feels like Conte's had more time to get some ideas Mm. into these players and maybe that is the long-term benefit of that two-week break and I want to add one stat on Tottenham I went through and looked at understats data and they're, they're a good spot for data in a number of different European leagues Tottenham since Conte took over Tottenham are third after Man City and Liverpool in non-penalty expected goals per game. And that's back since, what, I think November 7th was was Conte's first game in charge of Tottenham. That's impressive, right? For a team that was struggling under Nuno to be able to say we're underneath the top two teams, the clear top two teams, and really the only title challengers. Maybe you could put Chelsea in there. I don't really put them in that group at this point. For Conte to have to have gotten this team right underneath City and Liverpool in non-penalty expected goals per game, I think is is super impressive, and, and we saw that bear out in this game. Joe, uh, I'm I'm gonna make it three for three of people uh, agreeing that this is a very uh, positive sign for Spurs. Uh, even if Jurgen Klopp disagreed, his post-match comments were their <laughs> tactics were pretty much just kick the ball behind the defense and let them run. That felt 
very unflattering. I would say a weird comparison I would draw. We had the question a while ago about uh, what, like, how are Nuno and Antonio Conte's tactics different if they're both going to play a back three? Aren't they pretty similar? And I contrast it. There's a st- the story about um, the General George McClellan in the Civil War, the Union general who was famously like very, very slow, very uh, like deliberate in his decision making, but took a very long time to make those decisions. And so things tended to stall and take their time, famously leading to uh, Abraham Lincoln to quip, if General McClellan does not want to use the army, I would like to borrow it for a time. And I feel like that is the same thing with Antonio Conte versus Nuno. Maybe Nuno didn't want to use that attack, didn't want to use that aggressiveness, wanted to kind of figure some things out. Antonio Conte borrows that attack and just kind of frees it up. And I do think Liverpool played into uh, what Spurs were trying to do a little bit. I think they had to have a sort of makeshift midfield. They still played a high line, so there's tons of space. And if you're not getting that pressure, I think you can be got at. I think Spurs showed that pretty consistently. Deli Ali also has that that shot saved. Deli Ali, I don't know why I went the other way, uh, has that shot saved. Just a little fingertip save, but even there, that's another great chance that Spurs could have taken. And this could have been a pretty comprehensive win, but it's a credit to Liverpool that it was not in the end. And and the player who embodied what you've just said there, Taylor, for me was Harry Winks, who... Yeah. Under Nuno was very, you know, last row passes, very safe, very cautious, just keep things ticking over. But in this match, he was the one frequently, I know it's in Dombele who plays the pass, the assist mm-hmm. for the, the Kane goal, the first goal, when it was a brilliant pass. But Winks was often the one who was flipping the ball over the top into that space that we were, we're all talking about there with the, the Liverpool high line. He was the one looking forward and that just didn't happen under Nuno. So that, that's a big difference. So is this a new era for maybe Ali and Winks then at Tottenham, Graham? Uh, maybe in this lineup out of necessity, but proving themselves. Yeah, I think for Winks, certainly. I can see him sustaining this form. With with Dele Ali, I think he still has to prove himself on a consistent basis because my mind goes back to when Jose Mourinho came in and I think uh, Dele scored in maybe the, the first three Mourinho matches or something like that. And everyone went, oh, he's back to his best and he's looking, you know, better than ever and that did not last long at all and and he might not have played this match had Spurs not had you know COVID cases or, or injuries or whatever so but this this is a, this is def, definitely a good start and the player that we saw in this match was much more like the Deli Alley that got us all excited I mean Deli Alley was a player that I thought when at a younger age was destined to play for a uh, Real Madrid or someone like that you know I thought he was going to be one of the best players in the world and his his career just completely stalled, and this was much more like that player. This this was the sort of performance we used to see from him, where he was bursting into the box, he was getting on the end of chances. Obviously, he has a a, a great opportunity, which I didn't mention earlier, where he's he's slotted through, and Allison makes like a fingertip save, but Delhi should probably still stick it in the back of the net. But that's the sort of position he used to take up, and and for whatever reason over the last few seasons hasn't i would like to see him continue that in the next few matches there's there's the scene in tottenham's all or nothing that we reference a lot when Dele Alli announces that he has learned how to make beans by putting them in the microwave and then microwaving them and i like to think of that scene which at the time is played for sort of comedic effect under antonio conte who i assume would come in scream at him for eating unapproved nutrition and also yell at him for using a microwave and would probably break the microwave in front of him so maybe that explains the intensity of of ali's performance as a result is that things have maybe gotten a bit more intense under antonio conte he's got to uh sharpen up a bit and we see the result Sure, that sounds right. <laughs> yeah, no beans, no beans, no microwaves. Delhi Ali is better. No beans, Delhi parties. I like the sound yeah. of that, Taylor. Uh, we'll get on to the controversies of this game uh, shortly, but a note on Liverpool first. Joe, what did you make of Liverpool here? As, as uh, Graham mentioned there, they pretty much lacked their entire first choice midfield here. We had Tyler Morton as the holding midfielder. Was that a reason why they were, um, as Jürgen Klopp said, had the balls put him behind and Spurs were able to run onto them so often. What, what, was it the midfield that was the, the weak point? That was certainly a part of it, right? I think it's a, maybe I'll back up and make it a bit more general than that. I thought Liverpool in this game struggled to counterpress, and, and that's, that's a big reason why Tottenham had so many chances to put the ball in behind in the first place, 
is because after Liverpool would push numbers high in possession, they'd lose it, as teams often do, right? And that's when you want to engage that counter-pressure to try and win the ball back to, to pressure the potential counter-attack for the opposition. And Liverpool did that successfully a lot in this game, but too many moments when, when they couldn't win the ball, whether it was a midfielder sliding in and, and failing to win the ball, or whether it's one of the fullbacks doing the same thing, that, that was a repeated problem for Liverpool in this game. So that's a, that's a big part of it. I'm, I'm sure dealing with different personnel in midfield is a part of it. So that's one major area behind why I don't think we saw Liverpool at their best in this game. Another was just how narrow Tottenham defended at times. Yeah, they're in a back five, but they really compressed space in and around the box. Even when Liverpool would win the ball, Tottenham did a great job of collapsing quickly and getting numbers behind the ball to to Mm -hmm. stop Liverpool from having any really straightforward attacking chances. And so then that put a lot of stress on the fullbacks in this game, on Trent Alexander-Arnold and Robertson to be the creative outlets in attack. And to be fair to them, they did a pretty good job of that, right? They had direct impacts on Liverpool's, both of Liverpool's goals. So it, it worked out, but then you're running, in, it's a cycle, right? You're running into this problem, well, okay, we can't create a ton through our wingers, even though they were having some benefits, Salah and Mane. So we're needing to rely on our fullbacks more and really push them forward and have them combine and make off-ball runs. But then after you lose the ball and you fail to counterpress and your fullbacks are 80 yards up the field and your center backs are isolated. So those were some of the issues that Liverpool ran into in this game. Ultimately, a point, not the best result for them, but they're going to be fine. And I still expect them to be title challengers. Uh, but, but I think those are some of the issues that they really dealt with in this game that prevented them from getting all three points. I think I disagree with Joe a little bit because I think that what he's describing with those fullbacks is more of a feature of Liverpool's attack to me than oh, a drawback sure. that yeah. like we've seen those two combining for goals pretty regularly this season and seasons past to me I think it was just uh Morton as I understand it likes to sit a little bit deeper isn't as maybe adventurous in his positioning and I think when you have one of the three not being as aggressive in that press Joe to your point you're not going to have a counter press that's as effective I think uh Hamas Milner coming in is fine but not going to be able to press for 90 minutes and so I think you see it yeah you see it like slacking off a little bit and I think Spurs were able to just find some joy with playing those long balls over the top with Liverpool's high line which is exacerbated by the fullbacks being in advanced positions for sure but I think I think this was maybe a more of a one-off for for me uh for Liverpool and more of a positive sign for Spurs so it was like a very good game from Spurs and a mediocre game from Liverpool who did make some decisions did turn things around and then Andy Robertson got real mad <laughs> he did indeed well that uh, brings us to the controversies of this game so Andy Robson getting a uh, a red card in this one Harry Kane very much not getting a red card for what looked like a fairly serious uh, aggressive challenge um, Graham I think after the game Kane said worse to the effect of it was a strong challenge but I won the ball I agree uh, with half of that sentence <laughs> I think uh, what did you make yeah. of that one I mean, I generally find chat about refereeing decisions to be really boring and tedious, but unfortunately, it's sort of un- of unavoidable after the weekend that we had in-, in the Premier League. It wasn't just this game as well. So yeah, the-, the Kane decision, how he doesn't get a red card for that tackle on Robertson is beyond me. He is completely out of control. He's not even looking in Robertson's direction. His his stop his studs are up. He's uh, he's high. He's endangering a player. It ticks all the boxes of a red card, and Robertson is lucky that he sees it coming and kind of starts to leap over it because if his leg is planted, he he could have been really seriously injured. I think there's a general point about Kane as well, which is time time and time again he seems to get preferential treatment by Premier League referees, and I think we've maybe spoken about this on the podcast before. And I do wonder at what point you start to link it to his his status as England captain. And the thing was, after this match, it was um, it wasn't Dermot Gallagher. It was Peter Walton who does the uh, BT Sport analysis from the refereeing side of things. And he wrote a piece for I think it was the Times. And basically, within that article, he said that um, having been in that situation as a Premier League referee that referees will take into account the reputation of a player, the fact that Kane hasn't been given a red card for 10 years, not since he was a a latent Orient player. So that, to me, that sort of thing shouldn't really be coming into decision-making from referees, but it does place in my mind whether Kane, as the England captain, as the darling of the English media, does get preferential treatment from Premier League referees. And then you had that exposed by the fact that the Scotland captain is treated uh, in a completely different way in the same match. And by the way, Robertson should 100% get sent off. That red card is completely justified. But I just can't understand how uh, 
how Kane avoids that one. And there were other there were other bad decisions in this match and in other matches as well this weekend in the Premier League. Graham, I have a I have a question for you. To play devil's advocate for a moment, I, I have definitely this is like an amateur soccer experience, to be clear. But like when you play long enough in a league, you do get to know the officials a little bit. And ideally, you don't spend all of your time screaming at them. So sometimes you have a little bit of a casual back and forth. And I have had moments where I definitely like went into a tackle that I think would have been a yellow if like if maybe the official weren't as familiar with like me as a person, mm-hmm. more so than my style of play. And I do wonder sometimes if that should be part of the decision making if like in this example i think it is harry kane getting the sort of darling treatment but simultaneously if you are the official and you're seeing that and thinking like that like i know that's not necessarily a feature of his game i know that's not how he tends to play it's probably just a one-off i'm I'm gonna let him off with a yellow card here maybe it could be a red like do you have any patience for that line of thinking or is a red card just a red card and yeah, that's no, how it should I, be to, to be perfectly honest no no i don't really yeah. i think kane does this thing where he, one of his trademarks is, and we've seen this before from him, where, and he didn't do it in this match, but he kind of backs into an opponent that is currently oh, yeah. uh, that's challenging mm-hmm. for a ball in the air, and it's like he deliberately flips them over, which is really dangerous, and he's going to hurt someone doing that. But Kane's trademark move in getting out of that is he goes over, he has a little chummy chat with the referee, he gives them like a kind of pat on the back, and he maybe gets, maybe gets a yellow, like in this case. And I just don't understand how being a nice guy on the pitch comes into that decision decision making process because yeah. this to me was a clear red card and there there have been other instances where Harry Kane should have been punished um, with red cards in matches and he hasn't been so yeah that that's a strange one for me. Well, Harry Kane is famous for that move where he collapses when someone's going for a header above him as well. Yeah, that's, that's, what, that's what I'm talking lots about. Lots of yeah. dangerous play in that kind of thing. I do not buy this reputation thing at all. I think it was uh, Tim Howard on the NBC cover who was just saying he got away with it due to his reputation. I mean, let's look at it like this. If if we're in court and there's a murderer and there's a serial killer, I'm not I don't think the judge is going to go serial killer, you know, you're you're going to prison for this one. This is your fifth murder, but you this was your first time. You know, we'll let you get away with this one. It doesn't work like that. You've got to take each each individual instance on its own merit. So I, I, mean, I you really... should. <laughs> I'm not sure that's necessarily how the American court system tends to work. The final question of that is usually, do you have a bunch of money? Oh, you do? <laughs> well, then slap on the wrist it is for you. And that is kind of what I'm saying happened here. Maybe so. Well, that's a whole other conversation, <laughs> I guess. But all the, all the same, this was a very, very entertaining game uh, that we got this weekend. Tottenham 2, Liverpool 2. We'll be back after this short break with the USMNT game. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Total Soccer Show, we are back. We are talking USMNT 1, Bosnia and Herzegovina 0. The final US match of the year in Carson, California. This one was Cole Bassett of the Colorado Rapids getting the goal. Left it quite late in this game. Uh, his first goal on his debut as well. Uh, the US playing against 10 men for uh, all of the second half. Uh, Amar Bedic getting a red card in this one for fouling. It was Kellen Acosta, was it not? Um, mm-hmm. Joe, a good way to end the year this one. A win, a debut goal and a clean sheet but is that the whole story ah it's it's not the whole story i struggle with this game and taylor you and i have kind of talked about this before because in the grand scheme of things especially that we're in the heart of world cup qualifying the result is meaningless right results of all friendlies are pretty much meaningless so yeah it's good to get that late goal from cole bassett i'm sure that was something that he'll remember for a long long time Good to get other players their first caps, too, right? So there's a lot of really encouraging things that happened in this game. But the performance outside of stretches of the first half, which I really did think were quite good. There were a lot of good moments and some fun tactical rotations and things like that from Berhalter. But the second half was really 
a pain to watch, right? Bosnia and Herzegovina down to 10, as you mentioned, Ryan, for that entire second 45 and just a little bit at the end of the first half. There's no incentive really for them to be adventurous. There's no incentive for them to to step forward and, and make the U.S.'s lives any easier. So they sat deep in a really low 5-3-1 block, and the U.S. couldn't break them down. It took a really fortunate tap-in from Cole Bassett to to get the U.S. on the board late in this game. So does any of that really matter? Probably not, right? Baralthar, I think, got what he wanted, generally speaking, out of this game and out of this camp by getting players like Jordan Morris and getting players like Ricardo Pepe and, and Christian Roldan and Kellen Acosta, the Matt Turner, players that he probably is going to be relying on, whether we like it or not, in World Cup qualifying. He got those players minutes on the field, and he got them in camp and got a chance to really work with these guys, many of whom are in the offseason in Major League Soccer right now. So that, I think, really was always his number one goal and the second goal of this game and of this camp being to work in some younger players to expand the player pool a little bit. And we saw that. And the most exciting bit of that for me was Jonathan Gomez coming off the bench late in this game. And he does play a part in in that that late goal from uh, Cole Bassett. And Brian Reynolds, too, doing the same thing from right back. So both of those fullbacks got some time in this game. And I do appreciate that. So good game. No, fun to watch. Not really outside of stretches in the first half, but job done. And this one might be sort of out of mind, out of consciousness for me. Taylor, if I may ask you to take a step back and just, with all due respect, I'd like to ask you, what is the point of these friendlies in this mm-hmm. in, and this winter camp in this window? I get, as, as Joe's saying there, it's a chance to get the uh, the MLS players a run out in the offseason and try experimental things and new ideas. I'm not sure if Fairholter exactly reinvented the wheel here, but we need to see some new players here. But I suppose my question is, like, if you have a group of players here for mm-hmm. the national team and it's not the whole group, it's just a small section of that group, does it not just fragment the program a little bit? I get that you're getting these players run out, but they're not getting the full USMNT experience. And I suppose on that, and due to that, does this answer any questions that this game was asking? I mean, a late win over a young, out-of-window Bosnian side. What did this prove to us, Taylor? I mean, I think, first off, I think it's it's a pretty similar situation to a lot of the Camp Cupcake, the January uh, friendly. We usually get, I feel like we often get a Bosnia team composed entirely of players from the Bosnian league. And so in that way, this is sort of in keeping with what we've done in the past. And I think, Ryan, you're correct to say that, as Joe did, it's it's a lot about getting MLS players a bit of fitness and seeing how they fit in like with each other, but also basically rewarding them for the season that, that has happened and getting some young players just, you know, a sign of maybe what's to come and let them know sort of they're on the radar but I think broadly speaking, it is basically just an opportunity to get some players together and see what happens. I think two things that stand out to me. The first would be that uh, at the end of the game uh, on Saturday, when Burhalter was asked in the post-match interview, uh, what were some positive takeaways from tonight? He said, oh, that's a tough one. Uh, we persevered. We persevered and we got the result. But he really did have that level of pause to it. And I think that tells you something about how much there was to take away from this game. And so ultimately, I think it's get younger guys in, get maybe people who aren't quite veteran status the opportunity to be veterans because you have younger guys playing. But I look at somebody like Jordan Morris, and if you, I believe the story is that he was playing for Stanford and the U.S. needed a, a an opponent to scrimmage in a friendly when Jurgen Klinsmann was in charge. They played each other. Uh, Morris stood out for Stanford in that game, and Klinsman thought, yeah, let's give this kid a go, and that's sort of his introduction to the national team from there. And I think there's always an idea that maybe somebody will catch fire. Maybe somebody will just come into camp and show, oh, wow, they can do this and this? Okay, I'm going to keep them, keep calling them in and see how it develops. I don't think we really had any performances like that in camp, at least such that would then shine in this game. There was nobody that truly stood out head and shoulders above anybody else for me, and certainly none of the debutantes or the relative newbies showed that, like, okay, yes, uh, like, let's say Brooks Lennon should definitely be in the conversation for starting right back. I think he had a fine game. I think he did some good things on the attacking side. I don't think we saw enough of him on the defensive side to know for sure. And ultimately, I think he's probably, like, the fourth or fifth choice at best, whereas maybe somebody like Jordan Morris showed that, like, they can he does have a little bit of that step still. There is some final product lacking. But overall, I think basically it's a camp to see if anything pops off, but if not, to just sort of give people some minutes and see how it works out. And I think that's exactly what we saw on Saturday. Yeah, it's it's certainly a tough one for Bosnia to travel, what, like 6,000 miles to lose to a late goal during these COVID times. It seems like a <laughs> a, a, a tricky exercise for them, Taylor. But, um, I was oh, so... I didn't think about that, yeah. <laughs> 
I was so confused by where these Bosnian players had come from because obviously with the US it's to do you know it's the MLS players and the slightly different calendar there but I was very confused as to how Bosnian players were traveling over to the US mid-season to play an international but then I found out that the Bosnian uh, league has a break from early December until February which uh well, it feels like the Premier League might be having that soon, yeah. but not through design. <laughs> Indeed. I did actually look up Joseph Korluka. I got excited when I saw that name, and I hoped it would be Vedran Korluka's son, but uh, there's only about 13 years between them. I suppose it's still possible. Um, anyway, uh, Joe, anything else to pick up from this game? Uh, any of the players that stood out to you? We mentioned Jordan Morris there. Um, he had that early diving header and maybe one or two other chances before the half as well. Looking like his old self for a few spades here. He's certainly getting closer to that. And that, I think, is the single biggest positive out of this camp because I really do think Jordan Morris can impact the U.S. men's national team in World Cup qualifying starting likely at the end of January. I think he'll be involved in that in that camp for the January-February qualifiers and potentially in March again if he's ready to go. The challenge, though, with, with that is there's a lot of other talented wingers in the pool already. So it's not a shoe-in. It's not a gimme that, that Jordan Morris is going to be involved, but I think he will be given how hard it's been for the U.S. to be healthy all at the same time. Example A, Exhibit A, Tim Weah being out with an injury right now for Lille. So who knows what that will look like. But getting Jordan Morris back and involved, I think, is huge. I really did enjoy a lot of what I saw from Brian Reynolds in this game, and it reminded me of how fun and good he was at times for FC Dallas. Jose Mourinho, in part, is is justified in not playing him because he's not a perfect player and still has some deficiencies. But I enjoyed getting to see Brian Reynolds on the field, and same with Jogo on that left side, even for just a few minutes. So not a ton of overwhelming positives. Johnny Cardoso showed some moments, or just Johnny. Johnny Football showed some moments at the six. <laughs> Aces Ferreira had some nice moments on the left and then switching over to the right. But nothing that made me say, man, we got to get these guys involved. And even if I did think that, I'm not sure if this is the stage or the opponent, the opponent to really give us any long-standing conclusions about this team. With this being the the final game of the year for the USMNT, can I ask yourself, Joe and Taylor, like an overarching question that looks back at the whole year for the USMNT? Which which player do you think has been the biggest individual success story for the US in 2021? And can you can you give me a name that isn't Ricardo Pepe is it Ricardo Pepe is that the player who's no. kind of broken through and made this year you know every year for every national team there's always a player who either takes the next step or makes themselves undroppable or breaks through like who are those names for the US now that that year has um has been capped I've got three for you Joe how many do you have any ready to go two jump to mind for me but you can go first and I'll fill in after yeah, I would I would say uh, like I uh first of all Ricardo Pepe, he has a chance in this game that he isn't able to take cleanly, probably definitely should have scored and I think if he does, we're talking about a 2-0 win. Matt Turner keeps another clean sheet and he breaks uh what? Casey Keller's record for uh clean sheets in a year. And it's Ricardo Pepe scoring a goal and Jordan Morris is back and I do think a couple better moments and this is a different narrative that we're talking about but because that doesn't happen I don't have Ricardo Pepe on here and I probably wouldn't have anyway because he's had a good year but it's not like that number nine spot is definitely rock solidly his the way say Anthony Robinson has made the left back spot and I think that is a big one from where we were at the beginning of the year Anthony Robinson has been sort of a question mark can he do it should should it be Serginho Dest and we have other right back options it doesn't seem like anybody else can handle it but the way he has involved himself in the attack pretty successfully, pretty consistently, but then still been a reliable defender in a way that he wasn't previously. I think Anthony Robinson has had a really strong year. So too Yunus Musa, who has come on and yep. made himself basically a, a lock to start in that midfield with McKinney and Adams, the MMA midfield. And uh, I, my last one, a more recent one, is Tim Weah, because I don't think he had had the strongest first, I don't know, two-thirds of a year from the U.S. men's national team perspective was in that winger conversation, as Joe said previously, a very loaded position for the United States. And when you have Pulisic and Reyna as your most likely starters there, it's going to be tough to crack that starting 11. But Wea even was struggling to crack that second choice 11. But after, uh, I think, the the like the second round of qualifying, he sits down with Burhalter. They watch film together. They go over what he needs to do better. They have conversations, I think, uh, like like uh, basically via text, via phone call, 
when he's back with Lille, and now we see how good he was in this last round of qualifiers. I think he has cemented his spot in the pool, in like the top 30 to top 26 players pool, and maybe even better than that. So I think those three names are the ones that I would say had very strong 2021s. Yeah, I like those, Taylor. The The real one for me is Yunus Musa, and it's Musa yeah. by a landslide. He's made that midfield spot his own, and he should be a regular starter every time he's fit for the U.S. men's national team. I'm not covering any new ground there. The only other one that I, I thought of was Matt Turner, and I, I would feel a lot more strongly about this if Greg Berhalter seemed to feel the same way, but it, it looks like Zach Steffen has sort of made the goalkeeper spot his own again in, in Matt Turner's Gold Cup in the beginning of World Cup qualifying now. Seems like he's still going to be the number two after Zach Steffen, which I don't agree with. But I, I think Matt Turner still, for all the work that he's done in, in making his way up the goalkeeper depth chart, deserves a shout here, too. Um, overall, though, a pretty good year for the U.S., right, Taylor? 17 wins, only two losses to Switzerland and Panama, and Panama was the only competitive one there. So we close out 2021 with a thumbs up? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think, as they said in the broadcast, it's a thumbs up, but... If they fail to qualify, that everything about 2021 is suddenly seen in a different lens. Mm. So I think if they qualify, it will be a, a big thumbs up for 2021 in terms of getting the results against Mexico, the squad gelling. I think certain players being moved on from being part of the quote-unquote group and new players coming in. And I think we have, when there's the first choice 11 in place and they're all fully fit... I think it is a much stronger team at the end of the year than it was at the beginning of the year. And I think that's what the coach has paid for. It is indeed. And to wear Air Jordans on the field as well. Oh, of course that, of course that. Unless they're in Scotland, in which case, how dare you? <laughs> Big no-no in Scotland. All right, that's that one covered. When we come back after this break, we're going to go around the rest of Europe. Back shortly. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX, stream on Hulu. Welcome back to the Total Soccer Show. Let's go to La Liga. Graham, the top four looks like Real Madrid, Sevilla, Betis, and Rovacano. There's at least 50% of that top four I wasn't expecting, but here <laughs> we are. Uh, Barcelona with a 3-2 win over LJ this weekend. They blew a 2-0 lead uh, right up until the 85th minute when they got a winner from uh, uh, ooh, Mr. Gonzalez there to get three points there. Um, Xavi in the dressing room after the game, according to the paper Ass, said, you achieved a brutal victory, a win that will make us grow as a team. You can be proud of, right, Graham? <laughs> uh yes i guess <laughs> <laughs> but uh so an another one with another disproval of the theory that you can't win anything with kids right or was it <laughs> um i mean this was another sign that barcelona's kids are the only thing worth keeping about that club burn everything to the ground and actually that's pretty much what barcelona socios voted for this this weekend where they have decided to take on I think it's 1.5 billion euros of debt um, to rebuild the, the camp now in the area around it. Mm -hmm. They're basically going to rebuild it and start again, which I'm, you know, maybe it's just me, but I'm not sure in the current climate and the, in the state that Barcelona are in right now, may, you know, maybe that's not the best decision uh, to take on over a billion euros of debt right now. But yeah, in terms of the, the, the performance produced on the pitch... This was another sign that the kids are all right at Barca. Uh, Gavi and Ferran Jukla, who is a player I was not familiar uh, with until this match. He was making his first La Liga start. They both score in the first half to put Barcelona 2-0 up. They are cruising at halftime. I am midway through writing my report on this being Barcelona's best performance of the se season, this being the game that proved what Xavi wants from this, this group of players, and then a complete collapse in the second half where they concede two goals in two minutes through uh, defensive lapses. 
Um, and then for a period, they lose all control of the match, um, only for Nico Gonzalez, who obviously is another youngster, to score a winner with five minutes to go. And I think this was a pretty clear picture of where Barcelona are right now and what they are as a team at this moment in time. There is a lot of promise in the core of young players that they have, and it seems like every single week there's another new young player that I um, have never heard of. Two weeks ago it was Eze Abde, this week it's Ferran Jukla, I'd never heard of him before. Um, but they don't have the ability to control matches yet. That might just be down to experience and, and naivety, but it's certainly something that is holding them back because a better team than Elche probably would have taken something from this match. Taylor, I'm looking at the match day squad. I don't see Sergio Dest in there. Is he injured or otherwise? Uh, I think it's that Javi personally has a vendetta against the US men's national team and doesn't want us to have nice things or happy times. That's my only... Uh, takeaway from this game is that Xavi does not want the U.S. men's national team to win the World Cup uh, because, yes, Serginho Dest, once again, not involved. Joe and I talked about this last week on the Americans in Action Roundup. Does feel like he is a player that they are sort of making clear is available for purchase. Maybe they want to fund some other transfers they would like to make happen in January. So Dest does feel like he is surplus to requirement uh, under Xavi, not playing, not having the best of times, and uh, I am choosing to take that personally. Also, he is injured. He is injured then, Joe. Yeah, yeah, he's injured. That too. I mean, I don't disagree with things that Taylor said. We talked about that before, but I don't know that this is a conspiracy for this particular game. Maybe it is. Maybe it goes all the way to the top. Who knows? But it does. Yeah, Des, Des was dealing with, I believe, an adductor injury for this game. It will be interesting to see how he links up with uh, John Joe Shelby, though, in the second half of the season. really. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, Joe, I don't think you're saying that John Joe Shelby's coming to Barcelona, oh. are you? <laughs> no, I'm definitely not saying that. <laughs> I know that Barcelona have made some strange moves, but no, that one's not happening. If Joe can tell me what an adductor it is, I will believe that Serginho Dest is actually hurt as opposed to being kept in the FIFA dungeon. And there's uh, there's time for today's show. Guys, this has been real. This has been so much fun. Um, I'll see you all soon. Is he with um, Brian Reynolds in the shadow realm, as you called it, Joe? Very yes. astutely on Twitter. I yes. enjoyed that very much. Yeah, Des is just hobbling a bit in the shadow realm, but they are there together, which is quite nice. You know, they have some company. Barcelona, weirdly, uh, like they, they helped fund the uh, the raft prison from the Marvel Cinematic Universe that's just out in the middle of the Atlantic. They spent money on that, but not their midfield. But that is where Dest is being kept. And yes, Brian Reynolds, I think uh, Jose Mourinho also leasing space there as well. Wonderful, wonderful. I still think he had the lease from when Luke Shaw was using it back in the day, maybe, for, uh, for under Jose. Real Madrid, their 10-game winning streak ended with a 0-0 draw at home uh, to second from bottom Cadiz, Graham. Uh, they're still six points clear of Sevilla at the top, but uh, maybe not the most wonderful performance here from Real Madrid. And Eden Nazar given the chance to shine. Did he shine, Graham? Did he shine? Um, no. He was slightly better in the second half, I'll give him that. There was flashes of the old player that that we all used to we all used to love um but he he's just not the same guy i don't i'm not totally sure what's what's going on there because fitness isn't his problem this season that was the the problem in the first two seasons at real madrid he's apparently been fit since the summer but he can't make his way into the first team this was his first uh, start since i think match day 5 in la liga or match day 2 even and um yeah the the game just kind of bypassed him uh, Real Madrid couldn't break down Cadiz. There, to be honest, there, not a great deal happened in this match. It wasn't even as if there were a lot of uh, big opportunities. It just was a, a pretty frustrating match for Real Madrid. However, they were missing a number of players through positive COVID cases, so they could look on the bright side that the damage of a of a point um, is not so bad given the, the circumstances, and they are, as you say, still six points clear. Uh, another positive for Real, perhaps, is that Atletico Madrid did not get any points this weekend. Graham Sevilla 2, Atleti 1. That one shaked out to be uh, a win for Sevilla, who are still in second place. As I mentioned, even Rakitic getting quite a goal for the Open. Yeah. and uh, Luis Ocampos getting the 88th minute winner here. Um, how good is this Sofia team? Are we taking them as a real deal to be a title contender? Uh, I think at this point we we have to. Um, they are probably the only team that can that can catch Real Madrid at the top of La Liga. At Atleti, I don't see them turning it around anytime soon. I think Barcelona probably will improve in the second half of the season, but they've given themselves such a, a job. What is it, 16 points behind Real Madrid? Um, so that's quite a, a difference to make up. So I think um, Sevilla needed this win. Had they not won this match, questions would have been asked about their bottle and this was their first win over one of the big three in La Liga for three years obviously Atleti have now lost three matches in a row so they were certainly there 
for the the taking and I think one of the most impressive things about this performance by Sevilla was that I have seen seen them play much better than this uh, this season so they um they're they're definitely a strong team I still feel like the one thing and I mention this every time we speak about Sevilla but it's been the case since Lopetegui came into that team I still feel like they're missing a 20 goals a season striker Enesari is out injured at the moment Rafa Mir is a, a decent option he surprisingly didn't start this match I thought he would um, but if, if I was Sevilla and I'm looking at their current situation where they're six points off, off the top of La Liga, Atleti and Barcelona are not really a factor this season. This is an opportunity for them, a golden opportunity. In January, and I'm being entirely serious, I'd be going for Raul de Thomas to just get a, a, a striker who can, I think he's got 10 goals for Espanyol in La Liga this season. He consistently delivers goals. And if he can get 10 goals in the second half of the season for Sevilla, I think he gets them closer to Real Madrid. So that would be the move I'd be making. Mm, RDT maybe on the move. We shall see, uh, elsewhere in Holland, we had a big derby game final against Ajax de Klassica, which is the main rivalry in Holland. We had no fans at this one. It was a 2-0 win for Ajax, by the way, at Feyenoord. Um, Holland has gone into another lockdown, but lots of fans outside. Over a 1,000 final fans reportedly outside the stadium. Um, and according to the Dutch press, a water cannon was used to restore order and 64 Ajax fans were arrested. So plenty of action outside the stadium as well as inside it. Uh, Joe, did you catch any of this one? It was uh, it seemed like a pretty entertaining game with um, Dusan Tadic getting a penalty for the second goal and Marcus uh, Sensi getting an own goal, an unfortunate one from a fairly soft cross for the opener. This was a fun game, and it was a, a little bit wild, Ryan. Eight yellow cards in this game. I believe five of them came in the first half. It slowed down some in between those yellow cards, but still there was a ton going on here in the midst of an Eredivisie title race right now. Ajax for as good and as dominant as they've been in Champions League and at times in the Eredivisie, they're not top of the table right now. They are one point behind PSV and just three points ahead of Feyenoord. This win was huge for Ajax and a disappointing result certainly for Feyenoord at home. But man, every time I watch this Ajax team, I come away incredibly impressed by Dusan Tadic on the left, certainly, but especially Anthony on the right. He is electric with his left foot he had a curler in the first half that just missed the upper left hand corner of the goal and then he's key in earning that penalty for Ajax to to really extend the lead that Tadic then scores he plays a beautiful ball into the box this nice little slipped through ball for a teammate and it's it's just mesmerizing to watch Anthony right now and and to a slightly lesser extent Tadic on that left side who does play that soft-ish cross in that final put in the back of their own net. So yeah, I mean, this Ajax team is is always fun in the fact that they're trying to to play how they are under Eric Ten Hag in the middle of what actually is a title race in the Netherlands right now makes it even more fun for me. Does indeed. Taylor, when you see Eric Ten Hag on the broadcast on the sidelines, do you sort of pine and think, you could be mine, you could be on my sideline? I genuinely thought about that like slight blip that Ajax had as being him sort of like, oh God, I'm linked with Man United. Uh, everybody play bad, so they won't hire me. <laughs> uh, but with that said, I think Eric Ten Hag still doing an amazing job. Ajax unbeaten in their Divisie away games in 2021. No small feat there. Yeah, I, I, I do still like the idea of him coming in. I wouldn't hate if it was Pochettino either. But either one uh, makes me happy. But overall, I agree with Joe that this Ajax team just makes me happy because they are super fun to watch every time I watch them. Indeed. Over to the Bundesliga. They played their last fixtures of the year. Uh, Dortmund did and their the annual... Over. The Bundesliga is well, it is in, in many ways, Taylor, you are quite accurate. Bayern are now nine points clear after a 4-0 win over Wolfsburg on Friday night. Borussia Dortmund did their annual bit to help Bayern win the league with a 3-2 loss at Hertha Berlin, conceding three goals in the second half. Um, only one win in their last three for Dortmund as well. Eboy. Um, and also, uh, Dominico Tedesco's RB Leipzig fell at home 2-0 to 10-man Armidia Bielefeld. Um, after only drawing with Augsburg midweek as well. So RB Leipzig and Dortmund not so hot to close out this part of the season. Graham, Scotland, Celtic did a thing. Tell me about it. Yeah, so it was the the first um, domestic cup final of the season. Yes, we do play that in December. I actually quite like it. We get one cup done and then the other one starts immediately after the the new year. So this was the the League Cup final between Celtic and Hibernian. Hibernian took the lead um, in the second half, but their lead lasted, I think, about 30 seconds. Celtic went up the other end of the pitch. 
equalised and then Kyogo Furuhashi scores a, a wonderful kind of lobbed winner for Celtic. They win 2-1. That's uh, Ange Postacoglu's first trophy at Celtic and to be honest the turnaround in Celtic since he has taken over has, be, has been quite remarkable. Celtic were a complete mess in the summer. He wasn't their first choice of manager. They wanted Eddie Howe um, and went a long way down the road to getting him before turning back. Uh, so Postacoglu was second or maybe even third choice. They needed to rebuild a, a whole squad. A lot of players left in the in the summer. Celtic waited and waited and waited to make signings, by which time they crashed at a Champions League qualifying because they basically didn't have a team and then kind of scraped their way through Europa League qualifying. And it was a pretty rough start to begin with. But now, as I say, they have the first silverware of the season. They're playing pretty great football, I have to say. They're a really entertaining side to watch, which is one of the reasons they hired Postacoglu, as he's known for really attacking and attractive football. And it looks like they found a, a couple of superstars in Kyogo and Felipe Jota, and they're right in the mix for the title. So at this point, I think this season is going a lot better for Celtic than many people envisaged it would. Good stuff. Let's finish off this pod, gents, with a little look at Serie A. Enter Milan, stay top, and they'll be winter champions with a 5-0 win at Salernitana. They are four points clear. Uh, with Roma, Tammy, Tammy Abraham scored twice uh, and was what is called a counter-attacking masterclass by the Guardian. They stunned Atalanta 4-1. They climbed up to fifth in Serie A. Uh, Chris Smalling also getting on the score sheet there, his second goal in two games. Mike Smalling. Chris Smalling. Die grande Smalling, Gran. That's all I've got to say about that. Uh, Roma finished the game with a 29% possession and eight shots to Atalanta's 17. Uh, and they've now won three in a row since they were abjectly awful in the game I watched them play against Inter. Juventus, they're in sick. They're below Roma after a 2 0 at Bologna. They've won four of their last five as well. They're undefeated in five. And with the other Rome team, Lazio getting a three on win over Genoa. T Rock. Uh, some issues between the manager and uh, Mr. Milkovic Savage. Yeah, uh, according to Marco Conterio, uh, editor at Tutu Mercato, the relationship between Maurizio Sarri and Sergei Milinkovic Savic is at an all-time low. The Serbian can already be excluded from the match uh, against Venice. I'm assuming that means he is out against Venice. The farewell to Lazio in the summer seems to be taken for granted. And watch out if big offers arrive in January. So we'll see if anybody comes in with a big bid. But uh, Sergei Milinkovic Savic is a midfielder who can make Pretty much any team in Europe better. I, I would struggle to think of one that would not be improved by him being involved. Uh, so I think that is a player to keep an eye on as we get towards the January window. Always a fun time, but when you have somebody like him potentially so, available, it makes it all the more captivating. So he's the one that's going to link up with John Joe Shelby. There we go. There it is. <laughs> I mean, that would... Ooh, that makes almost too much sense for Newcastle to just splash an absurd amount of cash in the middle of January. Uh, Taylor, if, if SMS wants to leave in January, does SMS send an SMS saying SOS to his agent? <laughs> and if it's uh, Mino Raiola, yes. And then that is uh, mass forwarded to every cell phone on the planet is how that works. Yes. <laughs> Wonderful stuff. One more game to look at in Italy. Uh, the big one, according to CBS, well, they sent their team out there and they uh, had a big production around it was Milan uh, against Napoli. Napoli getting a 1-0 win here and leapfrogging Milan into second place with that win. Taylor, how did you find that game? Pretty, uh, well, well, I thought it was reasonably entertaining. What did you think? I mean, your entire summary and the noises that you made in summarizing it or how I felt about that game. I mean, the, uh, Nikki Bandini writing for The Guardian said they promised us 90 minutes of captivating drama. They gave us maybe 10. Most of those wrapped up in a contrived final act. And this was a Milan team that were second at kickoff, Napoli three points behind them. Both teams had recently been near or at the top of the table, starting their campaigns with 10 wins, one draw. But then the uh, absentees really mounting. Milan arrived for this game. They did not have Teo Hernandez, uh, Davide Calabria, Sim uh, Simon Kier, uh, Ante Rebic, Rafael Leao, also out. Napoli missing Victor Osimhen, Lorenzo Insigne, Kabadou Koulibaly, Fabian Ruiz, Mario Rui. It's a lot of names to not be involved in a game. And it did sort of have the undercard feeling to it as a result or the understudy feeling to it, either one. And I think that does explain how when Napoli take that lead, there isn't as much of a fight back from Milan. There isn't as much of a response because when you're already trying to figure things out with a sort of makeshift 11 to then have to figure things out when you're one nil down makes it that much harder. They get the late equalizer that is then chalked off and there's much consternation about that one. But overall, I thought this was a okay game from both of them but definitely not the sort of like big brouhaha that i was expecting 
Yeah, you convinced me it was less good than I remembered it. It was gritty at best, I suppose, is the way we could uh, describe that win for Napoli. Uh, Graham, uh, Milan sounding the Spursy alarm right now in terms of how things are going for them. <laughs> a little bit, and I think the most concerning thing is that this is kind of how last season went for them as well, where they were, they were I think they were top at Christmas. They lasted a little bit longer than, than they have this season. But then all of a sudden their their season kind of flipped and then they're left to, to scramble for a top four place at the end of, of the campaign. I, I have greater confidence in this Milan team than I than I did last season. I think they have better options. I think they're a little bit more experienced. And once a number of those players come back, they, they should probably pick up their form. But they've only they've only got two wins in their last six matches. They've lost a lot of momentum and they need to recover it quickly because if I looked at their fixtures at the start of 2022... And they read like this. So they've got Roma, then they've got Venice away, which I know they're a promoted side, but they have already taken a couple scalps this season. And that's a difficult kind of away ground to, to play at. Um, it's quite a full of character, a, a bit of a bumpy pitch. Then they've got Spezia, okay. Then it's Juventus and then Inter in, in the Milan derby. So I think after that run, we will know more about where this AC Milan team is because at this moment, as I say, it just kind of feels like last season is repeating itself. Wow, I'm looking forward to that Venezia game. The fashion capital versus the fashion brand, Graham. That's, is that a new derby? <laughs> it might be. Let's make it one. Yeah, I mean, we have to come up with a, a name for it. So <laughs> are sneakers allowed on that one, Graham? Mine's... No, never. Still not allowed. There are no exceptions. Actually, right. Think... does that continue? Like, are you allowed to wear tennis shoes, sneakers in Italy, or are they all boots and uh, will you be scoffed upon for wearing jeans and sneakers? I was about to say, I wear sneakers and I get frowns for Attaboy. doing so. Attaboy. Yeah. I don't think you'd... Ryan, Ryan wears accepted. those running shoes that are like gloves. You know, that each... Uh, Vibrams. Each, each toe is like a... Like, yeah. It's because <laughs> I like to climb mountains occasionally, Graham, and, and rock climb in, in my Vibrams. Ryan, that's, what, that's what I'm yeah. about. Ryan isn't fully American. He's only like 70% American. But if he had gone full American, he would at least have the decency to wear New Balance shoes with those jeans. Yeah. I don't know if he goes full New Balance dad, but... I'm assuming there are some uh, some embarrassing tennis shoes in there. Yes, I, I like white New Balance, some baggy blue jeans, maybe like a, a Vineyard Vines shirt on, a on visor. the top. Oh, and a visor as well. Yeah, beautiful, beautiful. It's a classic look. It's a classic look. Well, gents, you know you what we've like done? We've just sort of like a Mustang as well. There's nothing wrong with a Mustang. I'm, I'm approaching midlife crisis, Taylor. I'm allowed to have a Mustang. It's okay. It's okay. And on that note, we shall end the weekend review. Thank you so much, Taylor Rockwell, for your contributions as always. I feel like you didn't really mean that thanks by the end of this one, but you're welcome. Right back at you, buddy. I can see my Mustang out the window. I'm smiling on the inside. It's okay, Taylor. Graham Rutherford, thank you very much. <laughs> thanks, Ryan. And Joe Lowry, a pleasure as always. Right back at you. Listener, stay tuned to the feed. We'll be back with another one soon. Bye!